you brought a Bible with you this morning, you can find Acts chapter uh, 14. Acts chapter 13 and 14. I'm doing this going a little off script from our theology series, A Quest for an Unshakable Faith, although this certainly plays into it. And uh, thinking about Lucas and Teresa, uh, thinking about a wedding I did yesterday, thinking about the time I had to study. Anyway, I'm just being open confession here today. But at any rate, uh, uh, but I am very, very excited about what I want to share with you today. So Acts chapter 14 is where I want you to be. And as we get going here this morning, just to uh, remind you that uh, ministry is war. It is nothing less than war, supernatural, albeit invisible, very real war, warfare. That's why we're told to fight the good fight of faith. I just read this morning in my own personal devotion, Psalm 49, verse 6, where it says, let the high praises of God be in your mouth and a two-edged sword in your hand. Praise God while you're mowing them down with a word. This is what we're involved in. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers, spiritual host of wickedness and high places. So take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We're not in a war for land mass, but for soul mass, if you please. And if we are to win this war that we are very much involved in, then we have to follow a great plan and stick with it. And we don't have to make it up. We just have to follow it. That's what the early church did. That's what they did. And that's what you and I have to do. As a church, that's what we have to do. As an engaged network, that's what we have to do. So after a season of meeting and worshiping and praying and fasting and hearing from God himself. That early church embarked in what has now famously been called that first missionary journey, principally by the Apostle Paul. And in spite of unbelievable odds and unrelenting opposition, he successfully planted several churches throughout that time. So much so, if you look at Acts, go all the way at the end of uh, chapter 14, where it says in verse 19, we pick it up in context, where, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul, dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. And when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day, he went on with Barnabas uh, uh, to Derbe. And when they entered... Uh, when they preached the gospel of that city, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraged them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, I was doing a little research just the other day on the wars that are taking place in our world right now. And I mean nation against nation, civil war, that internal war, etc. There are 62 wars going on right now as we speak. 62 wars. And we know the primary ones, the big ones, the ones that could explode and have world ramifications, you know, in Russia and the Ukraine, in Iraq with ISIS and uh, the Islamic uh, 
gathering going on there, and this, this, there doesn't seem to be a real plan for anything. There doesn't even seem to be hope in this situation. So everybody's got an offering, but there doesn't even seem to be any prospect for peace in any of these situations. But no matter where you go in the world, you can look at all 62 wars. Eventually, our eyes make it to Israel, don't they? Because it's there where all wars, the war that will end all wars will take place there in Israel. And uh, right now, of course, the war with Hamas, uh, call it what you will. And just the other day, uh, Middle East uh, sources, and there are several of them that confirmed this, reported that a terrorist rocket launched from Gaza was headed toward a highly populated area in Israel that actually had some military personnel there that would have been devastating. It would have been hundreds of casualties. But you know, if you follow world affairs at all, you know that Israel has this technology which we've helped them with and they perfected this called the Iron Dome. This Iron Dome, which basically when, when a rocket takes off in Hamas, they can tell within seconds the exact trajectory of that thing. They know exactly where it's going. And so they launch a rocket to intercept it. Those rockets they intercept are 90% efficient, 90%. And so they launched one, and it missed. They launched another one. Remember, they're 90% efficient, and the second one missed. They knew within four seconds exactly where that was going to land. They were, they were, they were already issuing the, the, the warnings. And then one, the, the Iron Dome operators, one of the actual operators, reportedly said that a, and this, was, this is corroborated, a strong east wind occurred, literally blowing the bomb into the Mediterranean Sea. And the operator said, this is nothing less than the hand of God. No other country in this world has experienced the hand of God, quote-unquote, like the nation of Israel. And no war in our generation now quickly passing more illustrated the hand of God like the Six-Day War of 1967. Many of you have no idea about this war, which was nothing less than a modern-day miracle. 122,000 Muslims bent on desiring to kill the Jews surrounding Israel. And then you have Israel itself just one point some million people. They preemptively struck Egypt, who had military massing across the Sinai, right up to the edge of Israel, and they had the Jordanians massed on the, uh, to their east. They had the Syrians massing a little bit farther to the north. The entire world was against the Jews. The United States wasn't anywhere to be there except to sort of, you know, help them by way of moral support. But in a preemptive strike, within just three hours, the Israelis annihilated the entire Egyptian, the entire Egyptian air force. And within the next couple of days, they were well into the Sinai, cutting like a hot knife through, uh, you know, through butter to just destroy the Egyptian army. And again, that's why it's called the Six Day War. By the end of six days, they had incredibly increased all of their land. They got the Golan Heights. They got Jerusalem. They stood at the base of 
this wall, the wailing wall that most had never seen. All they could see was the poplar trees above. They'd never seen the wall itself. And there they were weeping before the wailing wall, which has the very stones of the temple. And they now had possession of the sacred holy city itself. In just six days. Even the enemy said, somebody must have helped them. There is no way they could have done this on their own. Well, we know who helped them. And yet I say all that because it was not as if God just took a bunch of, you know, a motley crew of of military and air force and just sort of helped them. There was an amazing plan behind the scenes that had been going on for years that went into that war. Uh, In fact, in that plan, they had four non-optional rules for victory. The Jews did. And uh, in his book, Stephen Pressfield has a book called The Lion's Gate. And in this book, they lay out, long before the Six-Day War, these four non-optional rules for victory, if they ever go to war. And as I read this book, all I could think of was, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yes! Because all I could see were the parallels, as found in this account that I just alluded to in Acts chapter 13 and 14, and we'll just sort of refer back and forth to it for the sake of our time. But I want to give these four optional rules and show how the Scripture affirms them, because we are in a war. And we have to have a militaristic mindset, spiritually speaking, if we're going to be a part of the victory in this war. Here's the first non-optional rule. Ready for it? The Hebrews called it daget bamesema. Complete the mission. Complete the mission. Now, this is what every soldier, and whether it be the IDF or the Air Force, They all knew. The first thing was to complete the mission. They knew that they were going up against millions, millions of Muslims. And they could be in the midst of war. And they could watch neighbors and friends and relatives literally die in front of them. And in this book, which is a first-hand account of the soldiers on the battlefield, the generals as well, they talk about how their friends and neighbors, and some of them had one of his brothers killed right in front of them. And in fact, the book has a picture of one of their heroes on top of a tank, and in the picture it says he would die about five minutes later. Right in front of them. And they were, these Jews are human beings like you and me, and they're, they're, these are, they're beloved dying. One of them talked about being, their friends being, three of them cut in half by a missile that came through. Literally watched them get cut in half. But in their mind, they thought, Daget Barmesima, Daget Barmesima. Complete the mission. Stay on task. Don't let the distractions keep me from staying on task. And I see this as a very powerful principle. In the book of Acts, in the first missionary journey, if you read through chapter 13 and 14, I encourage you to do it, you'll find one distraction after another like like you'll never read anywhere else. Demon possession. Parting of ways. John Mark was with them at the beginning. You want, your, you want your core group to be together, don't you? Well, this guy bugs out. And we're not told why, but we're told in another passage it was a very strong departing. Paul was so vehement about, about it when it came to him coming in again. He didn't want anything to do with them. 
So a parting of company goes on during this time. Opposition literally following them from town to town. And literally they would have both Jews and Gentiles coming to Christ. Churches started and Jews and Gentiles both coming against them. They come to one town. They start preaching. Paul heals an individual. The whole town's so caught up, they want to worship Paul. Let's worship him. And so they get ready to start slaughtering animals to worship him. Paul says, no, don't, don't do that. We're just human beings. Okay, then we'll kill you. And he gets stoned. We just saw that here. This is, this is all throughout this first missionary journey. And then you have the whole, the whole shifting from the synagogue uh, to the to you know, the comfy confines of the synagogue, to Gentile worship. And you've got all of this happening in this very first missionary journey, and then some. All kinds of distractions are occurring. But here is Paul glued to the mission. And I was thinking in my own life, the many distractions that I have had. And I've discovered that the distractions that I've had in my life end up being more about me than the distraction itself. I mean, I realize it's more, I mean, God's really trying to work in my own life in some particular way. Uh, I just married off a son yesterday, and I, I started off by saying, you know, you, you've brought me the, the, you know, the most frustration or whatever I said, and the greatest joy. He loves Jesus now, you know. And, uh, but I can still remember, you know, in the midst of that distraction, being challenged by God. You know, wonderful things were happening, and I was dying on the inside. And I remember God bringing me to a fresh surrender to say, you know, God, I will not be distracted. I will go forward. I will worship you above the spirituality of, yes, my own son. And I I, I realized, I mean, God was challenging me. I think it was really more about me than it was about my son. I mean, just this morning, I got a picture sent to me from our latest church planner. He's getting ready to sit down with his core group. The first core group. And here it is. He sends us this picture. And I saw this picture. I just started praying. I started praying for every one of those chairs and every person that would be represented in those chairs. And that God would, would help them to move through any distractions that would occur there. Because this thing is so precious. This thing is so important. And... And yet at the same time, oh God, if there are distractions, help him to complete the mission. The mission is more important than the distractions. And I don't know what God is doing in your life. I don't know what kind of distractions you're dealing with, but I'm sure there are plenty of them, right? We'll come back to that. Here's a second thing. A second non-optional rule for victory they gave was Whatever you do, do to your utmost. And that comes right out of the Bible, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like Colossians 3.23? Whatever you do, do it heartily, right? As unto the Lord and not unto men, right? And the idea here is when these generals would say, whatever you do, you're going to do it to your utmost, they, everything was so exact in that military. Not unlike our own. But no time for laziness. No time for slackness. Stay after it. Stay on it. And it's not just a matter of trusting your doings. If you look back in chapter 13, the first three verses, this is what it says. 
Now, there was in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers, he names them. Watch this, um, uh, verse 2. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to do. There's no question in our minds as we study you know, the whole movement of missions that it has to be a thing from God. As we look back at our own church life here, nine years ago when we began our first church plant, we were all excited we're going to plant it. We're going to be a church that plants a church. How exciting. And we were all over this thing. But in the midst of it all, a number of us realized that if we were going to see this thing foment, if we were going to see this thing grow, if this thing was, we, our church would have to be the healthiest of them all. And these other church, we'd have to do everything we can to throw our weight into these other churches. And if we're going to do that, then we have to spend time with God worshiping and fasting and praying and seeking the souls of men. And I can tell you that when we started doing that nine years ago, well, you know. The result is three more churches, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and I'm not exaggerating, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of souls have been converted since then. Complete the mission. And whatever you do, you do it to your utmost, which means it's not just a matter of physiological doing, but spiritual worshiping, intense worship, intense prayer. And we're entering into a brand new season of that. In September, we're going to go back, we're going to fast, we're going to pray, we're going to cry out to God to do two things. Save the souls that we're, that we're working with and restore the ones that are not walking with God. And we're going to expect God to do great things during this time. So, here, and as I look back at this, you look at the Apostle Paul, not just that, but you, he, in doing things to the utmost... He literally backtracks. I mean, if you, we just read it, you wouldn't know it by way of the context, but it says, but Jews came, verse 19, that we read from Antioch and Iconium, and Paul ends up circling back to Lystra and Iconium, and these were the very cities that were persecuting him. He went back to them. He backtracked. I'd say, Paul, go somewhere else. They're, they're, they're killing you there, Literally but so passionate about completing the mission and doing everything to the utmost and developing discipleship and leadership fearlessly. And so I would ask you, whatever you're doing for God, if you're doing anything for God, are you doing it to the utmost with every fiber of your being? Are you one of those people that say, well, you know, I like to help once in a while. How about giving yourself to the things of God? And, you know, I, I mean, I, I shared it with these missionaries a few weeks ago. What if we could just parachute into any one of our missionaries at any given time? Would we find them working? Would we find them doing it to the uttermost? And so we sit and we have the bears up here. We pray with them. We love them. They're very dear to us. But at the same time, I say, get after it, Lucas and Teresa. Get after it. They know I mean that. I, I mean it in love, but I mean it. And they know that. Thirdly. And this, this third non-optional rule for victory was what the Israelis called literally the secret weapon, the secret weapon to their victory. And I can tell you this, as I said to 300-plus missionaries a few weeks ago, we could be here all night, and you'd never guess what it was. 
but it literally is the secret, was the secret. They considered it the secret to their victory in the Six-Day War, and I would say to you, it may be the very secret of your life. It's been in my own, and I didn't even realize it until I came across it. And here's what it is, to be fearless of criticism. If this is so important, when you would go into one of these generals like Moshe Diane, remember he was the guy with the patch? He was like a god to these young Jews. Moshe Dayan, Eroshron, if you were to go into their office and look at their plan, like Moshe Dayan would have a plan, and he'd lay out that plan. Here was his plan. Here's the point. Listen carefully. He didn't want you to reject his plan, but neither did he want you to accept his plan. Are you ready for this? He wanted you to perfect his plan. And in fact, if you went into his office and you looked at his plan and you didn't enter into the plan not to reject, not to accept, but to perfect, if you didn't go into that plan that way, he'd kick you out of the office because they were fearless of criticism. They wanted you to enter and say, let's do this, let's tweak that, let's be a part of this. It was all very positive and reinforcing, but it was critical and at the same time. And they were fearless of this. They expected you to enter into their plan. This is a key to our walk with God. It keeps us from pride. It'll keep us from stubbornness. Years ago, about, I, I, I estimated about nine years ago, Abe's in here. I'm not going to ask him for a testimony. He'll make it worse than it actually is. But uh, about nine years ago, I gave the staff permission to criticize me. Now, wait a minute. I've been here for 16 years. And if you had asked me 11 years ago, can your staff walk into your life and just say anything? You know what I would have said to you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Open door here. You can say anything you want to me. In fact, we'll go back and forth, and we're all, we're an open book here. And it wasn't that I would be lying to you, but I think I was lying to myself. I think my own heart had been deceived, and I didn't even know it. Because one day, Abe said to me, you know, Pastor, you, you say that, but you really don't. I said, what? No, you really don't. We really don't have that permission. I said, well, yeah, I mean, don't you remember, you know, back four years ago? No, whatever, I don't remember what I said. But, but the point was, no, you say that, but I must have been issuing some persona, something that was saying to them, not really. I don't really, can't really talk into your life. And it was a very humbling moment for me. Because I didn't see it. I did not see it in my own life. And to become fearless of criticism, I cannot stand here before you and say, well, I'm, I'm totally fearless now of criticism, because that's just not true. But I do want, and I do invite, and I think these guys will tell you that I'm open to these things now. And it's made me, at least it's helped me as a pastor. And so, you know, when it comes to, when you look at this passage here, All we have about John Mark is he bugs out. We find out later on something bad was going on there. I don't know what was happening in John Mark's life, and neither do you, but I'm pretty sure he was not fearless of criticism because it took something later on for the Apostle Paul to say, he's he's, uh, profitable. He He can help us now. So here's a question for you, and we'll come back to it. Are you fearless of criticism? Because there are things that need to change in your life.
Certainly character things need to change in your life. That's an ongoing thing, right? Who's, go ahead and answer the phone, who's ever it's ringing out there. But, uh, but whatever is going on in your life, you have to be willing to let people speak into it. And do you have someone, as I said to those missionaries, do you have somebody outside of your spouse, somebody that's just not a yes person, that you look around just to tell you what you already believe, that will speak into your life and say the hard things that you're willing to be humble about? Who is it? Who speaks into your life? Besides our staff and the larger engaged network, I have three men from outside of this entire area that can speak into my life and do. I want to make sure that God is speaking to me and I'm not so stinking blind to myself. If we're going to be victorious in our personal walk, our church walk, our engaged walk, the things we're trying to do for God, then we must be fearless of criticism. And last I checked, stubbornness is not a fruit of the Spirit. There's one more, and then we'll, let, we'll be done. The title of the message is Embrera. Embrera. It's a Hebrew phrase. It means no alternative. Because if you got 122 million Muslims coming against you, and you only got like two, I think it's 2.7 million Jews at the time, those aren't real good odds last I checked. And they realized that the whole, it's, it's, it's not changed to this day. The whole mantra of the radical Islamic movement is to wipe them out. And that's what Abel Nasser, the president of Egypt, declared he would do. Wipe them off the map. And every Jew knew. And all these soldiers knew. We have no alternative. We must win. We lose. We don't just lose a battle. We lose our lives, our, our history, our, our children, our, our parents, our generations, our land. Everything goes. There's no alternative. We must win. And thank God, as a believer in Jesus, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We must win. And when Jesus laid down his mission for us, he said, go and make disciples of all men. He didn't say, go and make disciples of all men, and if that doesn't work, make love. He didn't say that. He didn't say, if that doesn't work, do social things. Help the, the cities out. Do this and do that. There's all kinds of issues. I mean, right now our hearts are bleeding over these people who are stranded in the mountains in Iraq. What can we do? Let's jump on an airplane, drop stuff down on them. I guess I'm all for the politics. I'm all for the help that we can give to other countries and needs and special needs in this world. But we have no alternative. We are to make disciples of all men. Not for land mass, but soul mass. And as we do that, God will get the glory. These Jews would go into the six-day war, and in the middle of, of pitch battle, they would say to one another, Embrera! Embrera! We have no alternative. Is there any wonder how God would use that kind of discipline and passion and desire to bring about a great victory.
Our time is really up. I can't say much more. I'm just going to wrap it up with this. What distractions are going on in your life right now that are keeping you from completing the mission God has given to you? What distractions are going on in your life that are keeping you from completing the mission God has given to you? And whatever you are doing right now, how much effort are you really putting into it anyway? Are you putting selfless, hard, passionate effort in it? Are you, have you kind of entered into this, where do I land this plane anyway mode? Is there anybody in your life who's not a yes person that could come into your life and say anything to you and instead of you defending yourself, you would say, oh God, I have to listen to you and humble yourself. Can you say that you're fearless that way of criticism? We don't have another plan. There's no plan B in what God has called us to do. And so let's do plan A best we can. Now some of you are sort of outside the plan right now. Because you've never trusted Jesus. You know, when, when, when Paul, if you read that, the last part of Acts 14, when Paul gets stoned and they're looking over, I don't know if he died or not, but he gets up. And what does he say to his friends? Well, that didn't work very well, did it? <laughs> no. The very next verse says he's out preaching the gospel. Why? There's no other plan, that's why. We have no other plan. And here's the gospel. Christ Jesus, the Son of God, died for you and rose again for you. And if you have never placed your faith in him, if you have never embraced him to be your Lord and Savior, that's how you get into the plan. God's plan was to save you through what Jesus did in his death and resurrection. Your responsibility is to believe on him, embrace him as your personal Lord and Savior, and he will save you. And then you can start this whole process of entering into this warfare that he has placed us into. Thanks, Lord, for this opportunity to be able to come together today to listen to a young lady declare her faith in Jesus. And we thank you for Becca. To hear from our missionaries as they transition back into the field and pray your richest blessing on them. And to be given this clarion call, Lord, to remind ourselves that we are in a war and nothing less. And help us to have the mindsets that will complete the mission you've called us to do, to do it to our utmost, to be fearless of criticism, so that we might not just have plans rejected or accepted, but perfected. And, Lord, to go with this mindset. There's no alternative, no plan B here, Lord. And be glorified in this, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask, amen.